IBM has reinvented itself a number of times in history. And that reinvention, we do big bets. What's the next thing? How do we make the world better? And I really think quantum and AI have a lot to do with our next step. It's not going to remove traditional computing, but it really is a game changer. And that's why DevSecOps security matters a lot. With the latest work we're doing, we're trying to help people be quantum safe now. Producer Adam here. Connor, what is your favorite thing about in-person interviews? The energy that you get at a live event is second to none. And I love the input you get from community members. Sure, remote interviews do work great, but they miss some of that spontaneity that you can get in person. I know exactly what you mean, which is why there's something that I think we should tell our audience about. We do have some exciting news. Dev Interrupted is going on the road to Lead Dev New York, March 14th and 15th. We're bringing back the Dev Interrupted Dome to do a series of live interviews with key leaders while we're in New York City. Best of all, we'll be doing a live-streamed episode of the podcast with special guest Nick Cobb, who's head of product and engineering at Kite at 8 a.m. Eastern on March 15th. Dan Lyons will be joining me as we interview Nick about the AI behind self-driving cars, on-demand vehicle platforms, and why Uber controversy has lost its product innovation DNA. So mark your calendars for March 15th from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern. You're not going to want to miss this. Register for the live stream today, and we'll put a link in the show notes. And if you're in New York and you want to come say hi to the Dev Interrupted team, we'd love to meet you. Hello, welcome back to Dev Interrupted. I'm joined today by someone who is repping our Dev Interrupted brand very nicely, thank you. And that is Rosalind Radcliffe. She is an IBM fellow and she is the CIO DevSecOps CTO, which is a fascinating title that I'm going to have to get her to explain. Thanks for joining us, Rosalind. Happy to be here. It's always fun. So super stoked to have you here I talk about what IBM's been up to, the more than 100-year history of the company, and much more about what the trends are you're seeing in the industry. But let's start off a bit about like your role at IBM. So what does it mean to be an IBM Fellow, first off? IBM Fellow is a very prestigious, exclusive position. It means that I've accomplished something major in IBM. Uh, IBM's 100-year history, we've had approximately 331 fellows in that entire time. And wow. there are currently 82 active fellows. So it's it's a significant accomplishment. I got it because I brought DevOps to Z. Bringing the DevOps transformation, bringing open source into the ZOS environment and really modernizing the way people look at Z, that was why I got it. But <laughs> the other reason was there was a challenge in IBM. We have Within the CIO organization, we have a very large organization. We run IBM. IBM has IBM financing. So we have, you know, we run a bank. We have supply chain. We build hardware. We do software. We do all this. And all this is managed by the CIO organization. And we recently split out the company of Kindrel, which was our IT outsourcing organization. Really? So life is challenging. So we're going through this transformation and we really want to be a showcase for hybrid cloud. We really want to show what's possible when you do things right, when you are a DevSecOps culture, when you take away those challenges from developers and let the platform provide more of that capability and more intelligent placement. We want to be, IBM is focused on sustainability and has been for a long time. So we want to show how we can do this in a sustainable environment. It's a big challenge and it's fun. I love that. It's a great place to start. Do you want to dive deeper into what some of the challenges have been around making that transformation happen? I I think a lot of folks in this audience 
are either going through similar transformations or anticipate doing so, particularly on the enterprise side. And so I think there's a lot of learnings we could take away from your experience here. Within the CIO organization, we're approximately 12,000 people. So we're kind of small, I guess. I know Um, some folks in the audience are hearing that and going, oh, man, my company has 150 people total. (laughs) Yeah, so we're rather large. I mean, IBM's, I don't know. 253. I don't know. We're huge. It's a lot of people. Uh, we're a lot of people. <laughs> IBM's very large because of all the things we do. And so it, it is a large organization. And so it's actually a larger challenge than in a lot of other places. But the way we need to look at it and the way I'm trying to look at it is I can't do IBM. Let's do team by team. Let's start small. Let's start this process. Let's help teams move. But we also have this really big challenge is we are 100 years old. So we have applications that were written in the 1970s that are still running. And there's nothing wrong with that other than all of the processes and practices that built up over time, yeah, don't make things sufficient or fun or easy or anything good. And so we really need to change the culture. We need to move the processes. We need to move the practices and help modernize these applications where they are in many cases, or transform them if that's the right business thing. And so we're really trying to look at this transformation as a modernization for purpose. Hmm. You know, what's the business value? Let's do intelligent workload placement. Let's do fit for purpose. People look at GPUs for specific purposes. We look at different processors for specific purposes. So when we look at how we're going to run our workload, I'm going to run high transaction throughput, guaranteed reliability, those kinds of workloads that I need to have always working on the ZOS environment. And, you know, there are other things that don't have those criteria, so we're going to run them in an OpenShift world. But my OpenShift world, it's going to run on X, P, and Z because it's the right answer because some work does better scaling up. Some work does better scaling out. So fit for purpose really helps. And we can look at sustainability from that standpoint, too. But we need to take those decisions away from the individual development teams in many ways, because that's just too much work. Teams can't, they can't transition. They can't do all this work. They can't do business value. They have to do their job at the same time. They have to do all this work and there's just too much work. So if we can abstract some of that out and make it easier for teams to do the business value, that's why we're building a platform team. We're building a DevX team. This DevX team will provide a set of capability It's not trying to remove flexibility, but it's trying to remove the waste and the work that they don't need to do. Centralize CICD to make it easier through inner source. So if you need to do something different, you can contribute to the inner source. So it's not one size fits all. It's got an inner source model. But it'll mean that every team doesn't have to build their own CICD. Right, we're not all doing stuff in parallel. We can say, okay, here are best practices from another org. Maybe we adapt it because we have different contexts from my team. Maybe maybe we're building AI modeling, and so we have to have a slower cycle or whatever it might be. But you can take some of these learnings. And I love that you're taking that approach of saying, okay, how can we collate the knowledge that is spread out and diffused within IBM and, and then diffuse it elsewhere within the organization so other folks can actually get access to it? And I think if, you are a little, if you're a listener to Dev Interrupted, you've probably heard us use these terms before, right? Like developer experience, platform engineering. These are huge opportunities for a lot of orgs to really grow. And I'd, I'd love to talk a bit more about your approach to that. How did you start spinning up this developer experience platform engineering org? And what have been the first steps and maybe challenges along the way? 
So from a platform standpoint, it actually started before I moved into the CI organization, setting up this platform so that we could more easily manage the environment because of this change, because of everything that's going on. We needed to centralize. We needed to manage. We needed to understand what we have. We have an inventory project to figure out what do we have. So we have this kind of challenge. And this is the something we have to deal with. So that's one challenge. The other thing we did, and I actually came in as this started, was create this idea of developer experience team so we can provide this centralized CACD, this centralized way of security enforcement, security scanning, all these wonderful requirements that keep coming up. Important requirements, important requirements. Security by design has always been true in IBM. Yeah. And so security is absolutely critical, absolutely important. But having every single team figure out how to do scanning on their uh, application, figuring out every single team, having to figure out, that serves no purpose. It's just organizational challenges. It, yeah. It's organizational challenges, and it's waste because you're having a thousand people do what one team could do and provide to everybody else. Yeah. And so trying to do this, so setting up this team, we did this to set up the team to do it for the CIO first. Mm. So within this 12,000-person team, approximately 6,000 developers, we're going to do it for CIO. Once we can prove we can do it for the CIO, we can scale it to whatever other teams it's appropriate for. We could make it scale it to all of IBM. And now that's okay. That's a real challenge and that's a lot of work. Yeah. Let's just start with CIO. Let's start with the container-based world. So we'll start with parts that we can do and then expand to different teams. We started the work and are expanding to the ZOS teams now to bring ZOS into this world as well. And so we're, we're biting off different types of applications, bringing them in so they don't all have to do the same work. Just and, makes it better. And I'm realizing, I think most folks in the audience will know what ZOS is, but let's just make sure. Do you want to define it for anyone who's listening who hasn't heard the term before? ZOS is one of the operating systems that runs on the Z hardware and Z systems, or as many people just say, the mainframe. So the large mainframe. IBM I is also called a mainframe. There are other systems that are called mainframes. But the large mainframe, the one that runs all the... Financial, insurance companies, largest retails, you know, governments. Yeah, nothing important. Yeah. Okay. The thing that runs the world. ZOS is one of the operating systems that runs there. It's a very old operating system from the standpoint of history. It's a very modern operating system because it's evolved a lot. It evolves. Just like the hardware. The Z16, the latest machine, is the most modern hardware that exists. It has an integrated AI process. In the chip. So the new Telum processor is the most advanced processor with memory availability. So I can do AI in line in my transaction process. Honestly, so cool. Yeah. Ten years ago, I would have been like, wait, what? We're doing this? It, it is amazing what's possible. And if we look at Z, though, the hardware... And for years, it could run Linux. It's been able to run Linux for years. We have OCP, so we have OpenShift running on Z hardware. So you can take advantage of Z hardware's highly available hardware. It's a reliable hardware platform. So instead of having to build for unreliable hardware in the X world where, you know, something's going to go away, we don't care. We don't care. We're building for unreliable hardware. We can build for reliable hardware and not have to worry about that. 
everything that's not the right thing for, probably, because some things I just need to burst. It's a temporary, it's a whatever. Some things like eventual consistency I love talking about. I really don't want eventual consistency with my bank balance. Thank you very much. I want that to scale and be always there and always correct. Yeah. So that's Thank you. the environment. I- yeah, I just wanted to make sure we we walked through that for anyone in the audience so we give them that context because I think you have such a complex and extensive understanding of IBM. You've been there a couple of decades now. 35 years. That's amazing. And I can only imagine the kind of like rich, like tribal knowledge you've also acquired in that time. But you brought something up earlier that I want to dive into a bit, which is IBM is actually much older than that as an organization. I feel like it's not talked about a lot. The companies now a little over 100 years old, about? Yeah, it started, well, became IBM in 1924. I had to look it up because I never remembered. But it had been a company before that in its computing, tabulating, and recording company. So it's been around a very long time working in technology, working with the government, doing things like the census, the early Mm. census machines, and providing throughout the years doing inventions like the bubble tests that we all oh, love scantrons, and hate, yeah. the scantrons we love and hate, barcodes, little things that IBM's done throughout the years. And I think you mentioned like cash registers, yes, cash registers, typewriters, all these like kind mm-hmm. of preludes to what are now digitized systems. I can only imagine. I mean, I know you're doing this DevOps transformation now, but I think one of the most interesting and impressive things about IBM are the continual digital transformations, like. Being a company that has existed for 100 years now, longer if you include the time prior to being called IBM, the just value creation that's happened in that time period and the different shifts in technological spheres that have happened through that, it's really interesting to see. And it sounds like you view this kind of DevSecOps transformation, DevOps transformation in general, IBM as the prelude to the next transformation of okay, like we're going to go deeper into AI. We're going to go deeper into these new emerging technologies. Would that be fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. IBM has reinvented itself a number of times in history. And that reinvention, we do big bets on occasion. No, on a regular basis. (laughs) So we do the big bets. We did the big bet to to play chess. And then we did the big bet with Watson and AI to do, yeah, the Jeopardy game. But the point with that is we want to challenge. We want to really do research and really understand. IBM is one of the few companies that still does pure research. So we have a pure research division that does all sorts of things. We have people with Nobel Prizes. You know, when you think about fellows, a number of them actually have Nobel Prizes. It's an interesting environment. So in a couple of years, we'll have you back on after Nobel Prize. Yeah, I'm not going to be in that space. But (laughs) we have that pure research. So that's why we do quantum. That's why we work in a lot of those areas, because we want to be, what's the next thing? What's really going to be there to drive the next How do we make the world better? And there's a real focus on making the world better. IBM's history, we had diversity from the beginning. We had people with different abilities from early on. And we are very inclusive culture. And it's diversity and inclusion. And that's been true long before the civil rights movement. So it's just that kind of culture. And so we want to be at the forefront. We want to make sure that we've helped people and taken that next step so that we're doing the next thing. And and I really think quantum and AI have a lot to do with our next step. It's not going to remove traditional computing with quantum, but it really is a game changer. 
And that's why DevSecOps security matters a lot. With the latest work we're doing, we're trying to help people be quantum safe now. I know quantum computers really can't do and they can't break the encryption now. Yet. Yet. But your data is going to exist for a few years. You're going to have backups. Yeah. You need to be quantum safe now so that when it's there or somebody's stealing data now that's encrypted, they could break it in the future. So you need to get quantum safe now. And, and we're only seeing increases in security challenges, right? Like, and at every step of the phase of your development process and later, I talked to the folks from Sonatype earlier today, and, and they were talking all about like Log4j. They just did a study recently. More than 30% of usage now is still vulnerable, even though we've had this huge push for it. And it's wild to see that, but it's, uh, it's not going away. Well, we need to get to a zero trust world. And, yes. and, and, and I don't, I really hate saying that. It's really true, though. We no, have to right. be zero trust. But we have to have a trust. We have to trust people to get work done. But we have to be zero trust. So we have to make sure we have four eyes on code. We have to make sure we're doing the right things. We have to make sure we have the, real, the security scanning. And your Log4J comment, we actually use that when we talk because Log4J was the final, the final thing that said, you've got to have this DevX team. Because we don't know what we're running. IBM is the largest deployed on-prem GitHub enterprise environment. Within the CIO itself, we only have 70,000 repos. Only 70,000 repos. We have over a million in IBM. And because of IBM's security concerns, we actually have private repositories. So we have mostly private repositories. You can't search GitHub to find all the instances of Log4j you don't have authority. So there's a lot of this twist to this zero trust and making sure we can handle it. So Log4j actually did bring home the idea we really need to have the centralized DevX team doing the scanning so we can create a data lake. We can take and understand and be able to query to say, we can't see the source code, but we know Log4j at this version is used in all these systems. Or we know this package is used here so we can more effectively manage. We had to call in every single app team to respond wow. whether or not they had Log4j. And a lot of people had gone out for holiday. It was Christmas time. Sure. So it was a real challenge. And, and some of them should have just said, I'm COBOL. I'm PL1. This doesn't matter. But it's hard to do that if right. you don't have a really centralized understanding. And so, well, you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to yeah. be like, oh, no, we're not using it. And then I have to come back two days later and yeah. say, oh, God, okay. actually, we're yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. So it, it was really important. And security is absolutely critical. And so, moving to the a centralized, to a reasonable extent, DevOps and platform team, you really can help with that because security requirements aren't going to go down. It isn't going to be easier. To be secure, <laughs> CISOs are going to add more and more security requirements. So if you can centralize the process of adding those requirements, then every team doesn't have to figure it out. And though every team has to deal with it, every team has to do threat modeling, as I say. Every team has to understand their application and be responsible for fixing those vulnerabilities. But we can use centralized management to identify them. And I think that is a really key critical point when we look at no matter what size company you are, you don't want duplicate work. 
duplicate work is crazy. Let's waste simply, of time. Yeah, it's Period. a waste of time in any size company. And so making sure you're providing enough common services without removing freedom. It's like the IDE. Who cares what IDE, some, within reason, yeah. who cares what IDE they use? But, and to some extent, who cares what the team process is, as long as it's effective. But the things, we don't want duplicate work. And I, I really like this conference this time. A lot of people are talking about platform teams and they're yeah. talking about DevX because it's really going to help. There's just too much security requirements coming in that are so important. I feel like in the last six months, it's really emerged, right? Where people are realizing, oh, this is the future and we need to address it. And I'm really glad you brought up zero trust environments and that approach to security because I know IBM knows this, right? Yes, a lot of your stuff's still on-prem because you have security requirements, compliance requirements. You work with a lot of government agencies, financial institutions, to your point, around the world a lot of ways. Uh, but at the same time, your security perimeter has expanded so much. Every employee has a cell phone, at least one now. Every employee has at least a laptop now, maybe a home machine as well. Maybe they got two. And you, know, you act, ask any major corporation, whether it's IBM, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, whatever, like they're all taking this approach to security for a reason which is that we need to enable zero trust proofs as a way to actually say, okay, like this is a secure identity and this is someone who has access to the network because otherwise there are major concerns and there's just too many access points at this point, but I'm glad to hear that's like a priority. It's been a priority, but it's the twist of all the new things that we have to do and all the new requirements and new, all the new options. And I hate zero trust from one aspect because we really do want to trust our employee, but we have to say zero trust because even if there isn't a purposeful problem, and there could be, I mean, that's happened in yeah. companies. There's been purposeful people trying to do something wrong. People can get tired. And I didn't actually realize this happened, but even with multi-factor authentication, somebody can get tired of seeing this pop up and then they can just say, okay, yeah. I actually never realized somebody might do that. Well, there's just so many things going on that you really need to make sure it really is secure. And security by obscurity doesn't work. And saying that my machines are behind a firewall doesn't work. No, you need defense in depth. You need lots of defense points. You need to make sure you've got the right encryption everywhere. You need to make sure encryption is at the right level in mm -hmm. things so that easy or as easy as possible for the application teams but it's safe and secure and that the administrator can't come in and see the data because that could be a problem because their identity could be taken. So there, there are a lot of things that people need to focus on. I do worry, though, that we if we put too much on the app teams, they're not doing business value. And so that's why I really think these platform teams, DevX teams are helpful that they can provide a set of capabilities and then the app teams use that capability. And by centralizing that, we reduce and we standardize because standardization, yeah. though, I know standardization is a bad word in some ways. Standardization is really helpful for some of these things. Yeah, for things like security, okay. having established processes across the company can help a ton. And I know you brought up the idea of some folks here zero trust and they go, oh, but we have to trust each other, which is true. But I think of it more of as almost as like enabled trust. Where we have to just double check, like this is a dangerous world in a lot of ways, it's particularly with software security throughout your entire software supply chain. This is not just a like, oh, let me look at my app. It can be also every step of you know your provider. Like there's so many layers to this, and I appreciate this perspective that you're bringing here. I'm really curious, what are other trends that you see? So you mentioned quantum, you mentioned AI. What are the things that you see coming the next few years? So I really hope 
that I see more people looking at fit for purpose really think IT goes in these, these pendulums. Here we go again. When we look at older systems, we had centralized IT. We had time-sharing systems, mainframes, that people would access. Okay, I'm going to describe a cloud before the cloud. Then we got to PCs and we did distributed computing and we put IT all all out everywhere. and, and, And now we're going back to centralized services. So we need to get to fit for purpose. We need to start thinking about where things go. We also need people to understand what cloud really means, which I hadn't heard this, but I've been hearing it recently. When people say cloud, well, they mean there's there's no servers there. There's no servers to have to worry they still about. Exist somewhere. And I'm like, wait a minute, no. It just means somebody else is managing the servers for you. Somebody else is managing the systems for you. It is not that the same problems don't exist. So if you have problems in machine hardware, it's just somebody else that's having that that problem. And that can be a good thing, being able to use someone else's yeah, They have systems. a scale economy they can use. They can be more efficient. Yeah, totally. All of those things are good, but you have to look at fit for purpose. Where should I run this workload? How long am I going to run this workload? It, is it more effective for me to run this workload on-prem? Is it more effective for me to run it in a cloud? Is it more effective? Now, if I'm a small company and I don't have my own data center, yeah, okay, there's a totally different discussion. If I'm a large company, what's the right decision about what should run on-premise, what should run in cloud? What's the right decision about, and it's not just security, it's cost, it's all sorts of considerations. It's network cost, it's backup, it's DR, it's all those things. And if if I have a very large database that has to always be consistent, okay, that sits on Z. So look at what you're doing and think about the application. And and when we focus on modernization, I see so many people go to microservices and I'm like, yes, but what's the size of your microservice? Do I have to have seven of them to do anything? The tight coupling of microservices is like the worst of all worlds because you went from a monolith, it was relatively easy to manage at least. Maybe it was harder to change to a bunch of microservices that are tightly coupled that, wait, now I have to manage all these things and I have to deploy them together. That's not what microservices are for. So we always go in this pendulum in IT and we need to somehow get ourselves back to the middle that says, what's the right size service? What's the right size function? What's the right size? What's the right thing for this business problem? And right sizing, fit for purpose, I think is one really important trend that I'm hoping I'm seeing. The other thing I I think is that's going to be really important is sustainability. I I think we have gone too far in the, I don't care, it's somebody else's problem. And it's not going to be someone else's problem. People are going to have to report what they're doing. And so they're going to have to know and they're going to have to understand, you know, what is my impact to the environment? And so I think this combination of AI to improve our capabilities, quantum to do processing in a different way, and this drive towards sustainability will get people to start thinking differently again. I hope more fit for purpose. I hope more, how do I get the business value? And we all have the problem of shiny new object. Look, okay, only sometimes. No. You're right, you're right. (laughs) Shiny new object, shiny new object. Okay, guys, stop. We don't, shiny new objects, not great. 
shiny new object can be really good for what it was designed for. Yeah. But let's look at what we're doing. To your point, we don't have to use microservices if it doesn't make sense for your business. And it really depends on the company, what your business goals are, what you need. Also, you have to look at what a microservice is. And I think we always go too far. So well-designed microservices, but are they actually all well-designed? If you need seven microservices tightly coupled together to perform a function, I really think you might have your microservice is a little too small. <laughs> so you got to look at what you're doing. And that's the other thing is when I started, okay, quite a long time ago, we actually trained developers when they came to learn more about how we do things about the business and about best practices and development. I don't really think developers coming out of college have that knowledge. They're getting... College education, yes, but they're not necessarily getting all of that. And so I think the focus on training, the focus on apprenticeships to bring in more people from less traditional background. You don't need a college degree to be a developer. Give me a break. There are plenty of people who don't have college degrees who are really good developers. We need to focus on these other alternative paths to come into the field and provide the right training, the right understanding, because the business context you can't get that in college. You you can't get some of those things. And so helping diversify our population through apprenticeship programs, through other things, I think will really help also drive what's the next thing. Because mm. we have we've isolated ourselves in some ways by limiting who we bring into the field. The more we broaden that, the more you know, new ideas we're gonna get, the more, oh, I didn't know that was a problem. Do you have advice for a company? And let me just first say that I think there's multiple folks I've talked to recently who are thinking more about apprenticeships, about like non-traditional routes into T or into engineering. And I think to your point, like we need a lot more developers. Like everyone knows trying to hire developers, very competitive. We're going to need a lot more in two years from now and 10 years from now and 15 years from now. Like AI is not going to do all of our coding for us. Thank you. There's going to be a lot of stuff to do. What would be your advice to a company that's starting to think, okay, like I need to, maybe I'm, Maybe I've scaled up to like, I'm, this is going to sound small to you, like 500, 500 people. And I'm saying like, okay, like we really need to start bringing more non-traditional folks. Like how do you go about making that pivot? There are a number of formalized apprenticeship programs that have been developed that companies can go find out about and they can bring in. There are also things like P-TECH. So it's a pathway to, oh, I don't know what it actually stands for. But it's a high school program that gets kids in high school a little bit further into technology and so that they can come into the workforce without college. So Mm. that's another choice. There are a lot of high school level internship drive to technology programs that are spreading all throughout the country to help give people this opportunity. But it's really look at what makes sense for you. Look at your community. Are there community resources that you could bring people in, Um, veterans resources? There are all sorts of places where you can go and look for qualified people based on their desire to learn, their desire for a challenge. Not that they know how to program already, but they have that aptitude thought process. And that's what we need to look for more than 
do they know a specific language? I'm sorry, the IDE can do that for you now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And often these folks have problem-solving skills that they bring from different backgrounds that maybe are more valuable. And you pointed out veterans, like they've had to solve problems on sometimes like shoestring issues they've had to deal with. Uh, or I talked to someone about, okay, look at folks who maybe someone's been a plumber before. They, they have basically ran their own business. They understand operations. They have challenges they've faced before. They can bring that if they wanted to say, okay, let me add technology skills uh, there are big opportunities there. So I'm, I'm glad you highlighted that. Yeah, I, I think it's really important, though. The only caveat I'm going to say about that plumber is, yeah, it's great to bring them into IT, but we also need plumbers. So, this is very so true. I, I'm going to put my little caveat on here. We really do need people in the trades. Absolutely. 100%. And we need to think in some ways that IT is a trade. We need to We need to treat it more like we bring in junior people. We help mm -hmm. them understand how to do this work. And then they evolve and they grow and they work to other fields. The other thing, I mean, I, I started out with I'm an IBM fellow. IBM fellow is a technical career path in IBM. I'm not a manager. We also need to work with companies to understand that you need to make it possible for people to move up in their career yes. as a technologist, yes. not as a manager. Because I'm sorry, I'm not a manager. I know I'm not a manager, but I'm actually good at technology. I'm pretty good at leading teams from the standpoint of what should we do? What should we go after? Kind of consultative thing. Yeah. Or, or providing technical direction, not management. More companies need to recognize this. There really it needs to be a non-management career path to allow these people to do it. We also need to build in flexibility into our systems so that we can get non-traditional people. If you think about it, some people have not had all the advantages that other people have had. Totally. And so they need, how do I deal with childcare or how do I deal with or how do I deal with? They may have more challenges. They may not have a working car right now. They may not have. How do we help those kinds of people actually be productive in these roles? So flexible work environments is one key way to help with that work from home or come into office some days or flexibility of when you work. So right. maybe you need to leave at three. Okay, go pick up your kid, go home, work, whatever. Just get your job done. These kinds of things, twisting the way we think about it is really important so we can embrace these additional people because, as you mentioned, we need more developers, but we need to think about it. Everything we do now has a chip in it and has software in it. Literally, just about everything has a chip in it. When I started, okay, that, yeah, phones were attached to walls. Very different world. If everything has a chip in it, somebody has to do that work. So we have to have more people. And whether or not you're a plumber or you're a welder or you're whatever, technology is going to matter in that field too. And so everybody needs to pay attention to technology and we need to help everybody do better. I love that you're bringing that point home because I think it's really crucial for folks to understand. And I think most of our audience does, right? Which is, hey, technology is eating the world. We, you know, we've, we've heard that phrase used before. There is so much more that's going to happen, though. We are I, like we're just starting to go up the curve. And I think you've mentioned a couple of things that I think folks have talked about. Quantum computing is kind of a next layer that I think will really accelerate this transformation. Are there things that you can share about what's happening at IBM around quantum? Yeah, so quantum's fun. IBM announced very recently the largest refrigerator built in order to build a very large quantum system. 
We've we made a large announcement about making the possibility of actually building quantum computers large enough to be able to do it. And I'm I'm going to get the name wrong. Kiskit. I think that's what it is. The programming environment for quantum is available. So you can get started in playing with quantum now. Now, it's very different, but more people need to start playing with it and start looking at what it's going to be good for. It's not traditional programming. So it's not the same kind of thing that it's going to be used for. Monte Carlo simulations, looking at material science to understand what materials go better to build chips. There are all sorts of uses for quantum, but we've only started to think about that. So getting into quantum, go out and play with Quantum One. It's on the internet. Play with it. Learn about it. Understand what it can do. Learn about AI and what the possibilities of AI are. But also think about the IBM got out of the facial recognition business for a reason. IBM also wants us to think about what's the ethical use of. And so we want to think about the ethical use of what we're doing. So as you're getting into these things with AI and whatever, let's think about what we're actually going to do with it. Let's think about are we making society better or are we not? And so we also want to think from that perspective. I mean, AI is is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely critical. We see organizations investing more in natural language understanding and in AI for call centers, for a lot of things that really and truly should be AI because, you know, I'm asking a really silly question to a call center. I really, why am I wasting a person's time? Let's make sure that we can, but do this in a way that's helpful, that's useful, Bring in that technology. When we think about running these systems, our systems are getting more and more complex in the cloud with OpenShift, Kubernetes, whatever. This isn't getting easier, actually. It's actually getting harder in some ways. So AI, from a management perspective, defined problems before they're problems. It helps enable humans. AI needs to be used for that enablement piece. It needs to be used to help. It needs to be helped. removing things. The best thing I like about the DevSecOps movement in many ways is the breaking down of the silos and the automation, this culture, this people, this process focus, improve processes, improve and automate. When I grew up, if I had to do something twice, I automated it. I really don't get the idea of somebody doing something three times manually. If you're doing testing, you're going to do it every time you ship a release. Why is that manual? People. Something's manual. Please, please provide a human to look at the user interface before you ship it, though. <laughs> so that's, Great point. you know. Great point. But otherwise, automate. This has been wonderful, Rosalind. I, re- I really appreciate the wide-ranging nature of this conversation and how deep you've gone on some of these topics. Uh, is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to close out with? I think we've covered a lot of topics, and I think this has been great. I think the important thing that I want to say is continuous learning, Mm -hmm. being willing to look for the next thing, being willing to look at the new things, but not being, let's go after the shiny object. Let's just focus on that continuous learning. Let's see how we can make the world better. Let's see how we can make our businesses better. Focus on improving. But that continuous learning, that willingness to change is really important in all of us. So everyone needs to focus on how do we learn 
How do we keep growing? How are we willing to pivot and change what we do? Fail fast, not in production. Fail fast. Make sure you understand what users want. But that that continuous learning, that continuous feedback is the thing that I think is the, you know, really critical. And I hope everyone listening takes that to heart. You know, read, come to conferences, network, learn. Just keep learning. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on Devon Rapid. It's been a distinct pleasure. Thank you. And I do have to say one last word for our listeners. I know I give you this reminder nearly every time. Please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps a ton. It helps us get amazing guests like Rosalind from IBM. And uh, I just really appreciate it. So if you could take 30 seconds at the end of this episode to do that, that would mean the world to me. Thanks so much, everyone. <laughs>